You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Lord willing, we will be concluding John chapter 17 today, focusing on verses 24 through 26. And so, before we, we begin, I will ask you to stand with me if you're able to read aloud verses 24 through 26. As a matter of fact, back up with me to verse 20, and we'll just include the last verses, 20, verse 20 through the end of the chapter. John 17 and verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for this time that You've given us. Father, I thank You for the promise of Your mighty Spirit to work in us, to open our minds to understand the truth of Your Word. Oh God, I pray I agree with your son in prayer and I ask, O Father, that we would see your glory, that we would see and know you. And as our understanding increases, I pray that our awareness of you of you and your glory would increase with it. Father, we can do nothing without you, without your son and without your spirit. O God. Work among us. I pray that you would enlighten our understanding, Father, that you would guard me from misspeaking, that you would close my mouth if I would say wrong things. Father, let our glimpse of you and your glory and greatness not stay merely in our heads, but let it work in us through to our hearts and produce praise, worship and adoration. Oh God, I pray that this would be our portion. That we would know you, the living God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this particular sermon is Loved in His Presence. Loved in His Presence. You know, this week I was looking ahead in John 17 while we were at camp. And I was debating at one point whether or not I was going to continue and finish John 17 or if I would perhaps deliver to you the 
material that I taught each day of camp um, on faith and what faith looks like lived out in our lives and what the source of obedience truly is. And, and I, I realized in studying that many of the same ideas were overlapping in our text today and what it is in us that's going to produce faithful living unto God. And so there will be surely some references, perhaps, as we go. We'll see what the Lord has in store for us. But I want to consider this, this reality of our being loved and our knowledge of his love and how that's related to his presence and his desires for us. How many people do you suppose have a faulty idea or wrong idea of heaven? Of heaven. People expect heaven to be, and I would have thought this as a, as a kid. I can actually remember as a very young man, I don't remember how old I was, trying to explain heaven. I was trying to evangelize some, someone, and I used this expression. I said, well, imagine all your favorite things, your favorite toys, and your favorite things to do, and that's what you're going to get to enjoy forever. I was trying to get someone to think about God and heaven and eternal life, but my understanding of the glory of heaven was very skewed. Many people today, they read language about streets made out of gold and gates of pearl and they think heaven's going to be me enjoying all the things that I love the most here and now that are not God forever. If you were to ask me before I was a Christian what heaven was like, I would say, well, I imagine I'll have a beautiful log cabin in the middle of a wilderness with great fishing, large deer, and I'll just enjoy me forever. Basically, essentially. What is this what is our desire to be when it comes to God and what Jesus is saying to us here? Well, Jesus begins by telling us here in verse 24, he's praying to the father and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. One of the most incredible truths about Jesus Christ, which is revealed in this prayer, is that He really and truly does want to be with us. How does that meet with you today? The Lord Jesus Christ is praying to His Father, and this is His request, that we who belong to Him would be with Him. How does that meet with you? How do you react to hearing that? Do you think, well, why on earth would He want me? We know that God does not need anything. God is self-sufficient. And what we bring to the table is not going to complete God in any way. He does not need us and He does not need our relationship. And yet Jesus says that He wants it. You see, Jesus did not merely die for our sins so that we do not go to hell when we die. That's not His sole purpose. He died for us in order that we would be redeemed, reconciled to God and enjoy relationship with Him. And I know this is a common thing. What do you expect to be the expression on the Lord Jesus' face when you enter into glory, when you enter into heaven? Do you expect that you will be met with a frown over all the things that you failed at? All of your failures as a Christian, surely you fail every day, as do I. We pray that God would develop and grow us, sanctify us so that we would fail less, so that we would sin less. And we trust that He's doing that. But do you expect when you first look upon the face of your Savior, He's going to look at you with a kind of disdain that says, I died for you and this is all you did for me? How do you expect to be met by 
the Savior of your soul. Jesus prayed, fully aware of his followers and their sin and their failure. And he says this, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. You see, a prominent difference between true Christianity and man-centered religion is that true Christians want God as well. Jesus says, I desire that they would be with me. And if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you desire to be with him as well. You see, our understanding of eternal life must be, as we saw already, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That reality of a knowing and relating with God, that is our end. That is our hope. And that is what will make up the centerpiece and focus of heaven, of our enjoyment of God forever. And I suggest to you that if you right now, here and now, are not longing for God in a similar way, do you think when you get to heaven all of a sudden you're going to want God? If you don't already want Him now? If you're not already longing for this relationship with God? Thirsting for God is in a dry land with no water? We heard in the call to worship from Psalm 63. You see, there are many people who think that they would like to be in heaven They just don't want anything to do with God or with Christ. They're not anxiously looking forward to being with Him and in His presence. And you know, for those who are outside of Christ, they don't really want heaven as the Bible describes. They don't really want this relationship with Him. Consider this from Psalm 42, verses 1-2. through This is the expression of a Christian as it relates to this reality of heaven and what we hope for. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You hear there's this thirsting after God. Your soul, not not just some carnal fulfillment of a desire that I may have, but my soul, my very soul is thirsting after God. And here's the thing, it's not simply that I I want something that's going to benefit me. Surely if you're thirsty, water from a stream that's cold and pure, it's something you're going to enjoy. But there's even a deeper thing involved. There's a need. If you don't have this water, you're going to die. This water, this, this thing you're thirsting after is the very source of life to you. That's the Christian's expression. And notice what he says there. I thirst for you, for God. For the living God. What does that tell you? This is not thirsting simply for some God out there somewhere who's not actually involved in my life. The living God, the God who acts, the God who's continued to act, the God who meets with His people. And notice He says, when shall I come and appear before God? He wants to be with God in the presence of God. This, Jesus says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So I ask, What is your idea of heaven and eternal life? Are you only interested in God and in heaven so that you can escape hell? Do you imagine that you will spend eternity in a happy condition simply because you're not suffering? You know, I want to suggest something to you. One of the reasons that life on earth now is so full of suffering and misery by so many people 
It's because they're experiencing a kind of hell. Do you know why that is? Because they're separated from God. Separated from God and the knowledge of His love and relationship to Him. And I suppose if you can take that idea, and surely there will be wrath poured out, but the reality of hell or suffering must be related to the fact that there's this separation from the One in whom we were supposed to find our full satisfaction. An emptiness. A vanity of sorts. All the suffering and misery in this life are really the result of two things. Our sin and the consequences that sin brings, as well as the despair that comes from feeling that separation from God. The Scripture says that the way of the sinner or transgressor is hard. That's true, isn't it? You tell your child, if you do this thing, if you're disobedient to me in this, it's not going well for you. That's the testimony of Scripture. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. There's a good benefit to obedience to God. And there is suffering and misery from disobedience. But at the same time, there is suffering, there is misery as a necessary consequence to being separated from God Himself. Think of it this way. I mentioned already from John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Jesus is that fountain. Come Thou fount of every blessing we sing. Jesus is that fountain of heaven that every joy and every happiness flows from. And I ask again, do you want to drink from this fountain now? Do you want to know and enjoy and experience the presence of Christ with you in your life right now? Or not? If not, why not? What's being set before you now is not just simply a get out of hell free card. It's not me saying to you that if you look to Jesus, you're not going to burn forever. The message is, come to Christ, the one who sustains your soul. The one who gives living water. Bliss and ease are of no value if God Himself is not with us. You know, in considering Jesus' expression, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And thinking on that, it it caused me to remember uh, a description that's given to us in the Old Testament. And you've got the children of Israel. They've been delivered out of bondage in Egypt. And then they've, they've, they've gone forward. They've crossed the Red Sea. And there they are. And God comes down to Moses on Mount Sinai, gives them the law. And while He's up there, the people, they make for themselves a golden calf. And they're worshiping this golden calf, sinning against God, saying this thing that we made, this is what's delivered us out of, out of Egypt. Not the God that Moses is up there doing whatever he's doing with. Moses comes down, and as a result of this sin, and and we won't go through that whole narrative, but as a result of this sin of the people, God's anger is kindled against them. And He says to Moses, this land I've promised you, flowing with milk and honey, this promised land in Canaan, go ahead, go, you go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. I'll give you an angel to protect you. You will enter this land, but I'm not going to be in the midst of you any longer. You know what it says that the people did? They mourned. They grieved. 
They said, we don't want Canaan. We don't want the promised land, the blessings of God without God. We want God. If if God's not with us, what's the point in going? Now, essentially, they considered all the blessings that God had promised them to be worthless if God was not with them. And so I ask, what specifically about this God that we're meant to know and relate with is supposed to captivate our gaze? What will we be focused upon for all eternity and glory? What will we be focused on there? And what ought we to be longing to grow in our knowledge of now? He says, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. What for? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here's the culmination of our experience in the presence of God is that we're supposed to see glory. Jesus says, I want them with me so they can see my glory. And that glory is wrapped up in this expression of love between the father and son. You see, the centerpiece of heaven is the glory of Christ. And if there is anything which ought to stir our hearts here and now to long for life to come, It is the promise that we will see His glory. And you know the Scripture says we see that glory now. We look through a glass dimly. We don't see it in full. And yet, our hopeful expectation, even now, our longing desire must be to say with Moses, who would go on in that very scene there in Exodus, to say, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, pause for a moment. Think about this. I've mentioned this before and I don't grow tired of repeating it because it's so helpful and it so describes what our desires and motivations ought to be. Had Moses, had he seen God's glory before that point when he actually says, show me your glory in the scriptures? Had Moses seen it yet? One day he's going along and he discovers there's a bush on fire burning, but not being consumed as it's burning. And a voice calls to him out of that bush that's on fire. God met with him. God spoke with him. There's some glory. Some glory in that. And then fast forward, God takes this man Moses and sends him back into Egypt to deliver the people out. He sees the plagues and power of God leveled against Egypt. Mightily so. Glory in it. Amazement. Wonder. And then even still further yet, He delivers them out of Egypt. They come up to the Red Sea. There's nothing they can do. They've got two mountains on either side of them and the host of Egypt's Egypt's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. Nowhere to go. They're about to die. God says to Moses, tell the people forward, forward. We're going forward. How are we going forward with the sea in front of us? God parts the sea. Moses saw glory. Fast forward. Moses gets the law given from the very hand of God on tablets of stone. Glory. Now, think about all of these things in the life of this man, Moses. Why would he say, God, show me your glory? Is Moses despising the day of small things as the scripture tells us not to do? Is he saying, God, you've done little things so far. I want you to do something big. He's not despising those things, but he's seeing the end of those things. If you get but a glimpse of God, you will know for certain there is more than you have seen. There is greater glory than you have yet come to see and know. Cry, show me your glory. 
And one of the greatest problems, I'm speaking to Christian people, and yet one of the greatest problems of those who are not Christian, of those who are lost and living in a damned position here and now before God, is that they cannot see this glory. They don't see it. Now, I suppose that if my problem before I become a Christian is that I cannot see the glory of God, I suppose it's right that once I've been given eyes to see, when the scales have come off and I can see the glory of God, that I'm meant to look upon it. If that which prevented me from seeing God rightly was my sin, my blindness and my unbelief, now that I can see, I can believe, I can have faith by the grace of God, should not I be exercising that faith and looking upon Him in His glory, seeing God as He is? This is depicted for us perfectly. You can turn there or take this down in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes and says, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. What does that mean, veiled? Covered up. They can't see it. They've got a blindfold on. Those who cannot see the gospel, this is what he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the picture perfectly for us. You don't see the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, because you're blinded. He says, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And through that preaching, God is pleased to shine forth out of heaven and to show you Christ that you may see his glory. See the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through this heavenly knowledge, this heavenly understanding that's brought to bear upon you. We're meant to see that glory. And although Christ is all powerful, he does have all strength in mind. The glory which this heavenly vision demonstrates is seen in relationship. Do you recall from the last sermon we were considering what is the glory? Is it some vain expression of heroism or strength or might in a carnal way? The glory Jesus is praying for in John 17. Glorify me how? In your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, the glory that we're meant to see and know has something to do with the relationship that exists within the triune God that we have been brought into and made a part of. You see, this glory existed before the foundation of the world. What does that tell you? This glory, what we're meant to see. Father, that they may be with me, that they may behold my glory. What does that mean? means that this glory that existed before the world was before anything else existed, all there was was God and there was glory. What does that tell you that this glory is not in some mighty expression of conquering and defeating and killing and destroying this glory? The greatest glory is that which exists in the triune relationship, 
There's glory to be had in this kind of love that exists in the Godhead. That is not to say that God changed in His creative work. It is not to say that God, whenever He expresses Himself in wrath and in fury, that He's becoming different. But it's to say at the very heart of who God is and His glory is that relationship within the triune God. This tells me that His beauty, His splendor, and His glory is most realized in that very relationship. And so we're looking, we're listening. Jesus is saying that we may be with Him where He is in order that we would see this glory that's contained in an expression of love before the foundation of the world. That's what we're to be longing for. That when we are fully consummated to Him and we know Him fully and we see Him even as we are seen ourselves, that at that point, we will know this glory. Verse 25, he moves forward and prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. What do we see in this? Well, just a side note for you to take down and remember something I discussed with the kids this week during one of our lessons that we were doing together at camp. Jesus Christ Himself pronounces and proclaims, O righteous Father, in another place, Holy Father. How often in prayer do you repeat out loud to yourself truths concerning God's character? How beneficial and good is it for me to remember that God is a heavenly Father, that He entreats me as a son, that He is righteous, that He is good, that He is just. God has not forgotten who He is, but how quickly we do. Jesus Christ did not forget who His Father was, but He proclaims to Him, O righteous Father. And notice, notice how this language that we see in verse 25 continues the thought we've been making. Notice this. Language of relationship. Jesus employs language that tells us about relationship. Does He not? Though the world does not know you. That's the problem. They don't know God. They're without God. Jesus says, I know you. Relationship. And these know that you have sent me. Does your knowledge of God, of who He is, draw your heart towards Him? Does it compel you to come to Him as you find out and know who He is? That's the same thought from last week expressed again in a different way. Last week we heard that, that it is those Jesus is praying for those who have come to believe in Him on the basis of the Word of His followers. The Word that's been preserved for us. The very Word we're reading here today ought to be drawing our hearts and our affections to God. The world, they're not drawn to God because they're not given this faith and understanding of God and love for God. And the primary cause of all the world's depression and sin is that it does not know God. Lost people spin their wheels and they're seeking after anything and everything that can fill the void in their hearts, which God alone can fill. They want to be satisfied. That's the reason, once again, we consider the people groups, the communities that people will chase after. I got to identify with this particular group. Why? So I can feel like I belong. So I can feel like I'm loved. The only place we're going to find that is God Himself. My question, in light of what Jesus is saying here, is where are you 
going to be satisfied. Personally, individually, where will you be satisfied? From which well are you going to drink from? Where are you going to find your your sustenance? Where are you going to be sated? Where are you going to have your thirst quenched? Will it be in God? Verse 26, Jesus says this, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Firstly, Who's Jesus praying for here? Who's he talking about? I made known to them your name. Well, initially he's talking about his disciples who'd come to follow, love and trust him at this point. But we already know that he says, I'm not praying for them only, but for all who are going to believe according to their word. That applies to us. And now here today we're reading this. Jesus says, I've made known to them your name. If you have come to know God. As Father, through Jesus Christ and His Word, He's talking about you. At one point in your life, you came to know God because of Christ. You were reconciled to God because of Christ. That's true of you. And here, listen to what He says. And I will continue to make it known. Now, I I do not believe that Jesus here is only referring to His ongoing ministry in the life of His disciples before He died. And I don't believe that it's only limited to Jesus ministering to them, making God known to them in a further way after his resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm going to continue to make it known. What does he mean? Consider the way that Luke starts, starts the book of Acts. He wrote his gospel, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the history of the church and how it started. Both of these things he wrote to the same individual, Theophilus. And when he starts the book of Acts, this is, how, this is what he says. He says, the former treaties, the former things I've written to you, O excellent Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now what does that tell you? That language is very important. Jesus began. That means He's continued. He's not finished. He's continuing to work. That's the whole point of Him saying, I'm going to send a comforter of the Spirit of God to you that I might continue making known to you God, the name of God. You might grow, continue to grow. Is that not what marks all of your epistles? That Paul would say that they would know God, have a knowledge of God, a knowledge of Christ. That he continued this work of making God known to you. The chief end of the Lord's Prayer here in John 17 is that we would know God, and that the result of knowing God is that we would know His love and His presence. You see, in this is the glory of Christ that I will continue to make it known. Let me ask you something. You're a Christian. You say, I love Jesus Christ. Are you satisfied with the knowledge of God that you have now? Are you satisfied with what you have come to know? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not at all for a moment suggesting that we ought to add to or try to improve the gospel in any way. Here's what I'm asking you. Do you long to grow in fellowship with the God you've been reconciled to by the gospel? God did not merely save you in order that you would not go to hell, but that you would go to him, that you would be with him. Jesus is praying, Father, I desire that they may be with me. Do you long for the same? And notice this. 
Notice how Jesus declares that he's going to continue to make those who had already come to him know the name of God. Very fitting to consider together for a moment. Philippians, you can turn there to Philippians chapter three, if you like, for a moment. Philippians chapter three. We get a perfect description of this. Listen to what Paul says. Jesus says, and I will continue to make it known the the name of God that is. And the end of knowing the name of God is that the love which God the Father loves the Son with would be in those who've come to know it. And that they would have an experience and an awareness of His presence that's contained in this phrase, and I in them. Now consider those things in light of Philippians 3. Begin in verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Just pause for a moment. I cannot hardly publicly read that verse without smiling because I share Paul's sentiment. Do I ever repeat things to you? Surely so. But it doesn't trouble me. It's good. It's it's no trouble to me. It's safe for you. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying to us there? What's he saying? That his knowledge of the fact that he could never have accomplished salvation by the law. He could never have attained it. Though he had all these external things going for him. He says, I am not righteous. I'm not justified by the law. But faith in Jesus Christ and in light of what Jesus did for him. He says, I want to know him. I want to press on to know him more and more to know Christ. Jesus is praying that way. Paul says that I may be found in him. Jesus has prayed 
that He would be in us. That our knowledge of the glory of God is seen uniquely in the face of Jesus Christ as we relate with Him. And so I say to you today, if you are without Christ, why would you die in that miserable condition? I mentioned in the call or before the call to worship and the praise time concerning an upcoming baptism to you children. But I suppose perhaps it was foolish of me to assume in that statement that there were no adults in here who whatever may be true about you outwardly and religiously have yet to come to know Christ in this way. That as you behold what we're doing even here and now, that you would see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And what is that glory? There's glory in this perfect relationship. This love that's enjoyed. And you and I, before we come to Christ, are separated from that because of sin. God's justice demands your punishment. And the wrath of God is abiding upon you. Why would you not flee to Him and live to know the glory of this perfect and unending relationship? To know this relentless love, this unending love, unfailing love, this love demonstrated at the cross of Christ. The Savior's sovereign love. And as a Christian, are you content in what God has already done? Make no mistake, that list that Paul gives in Philippians 3, those things were not bad. They were external and they were good, but they weren't the substance. The substance is Christ. The substance is Jesus seeing, knowing, and loving Him. Will we dare say that we've had enough? That what I've come to see and know about this Jesus is enough? That I not long to press to know Him more and more and more? Do we earnestly desire that Jesus' prayer and promise to continue making God known to us would be true in us? Let me suggest to you this. If you have no longing desire to know Christ more in this way, I do not believe that you have come to know Him at all. If you're content to say, I'm saved, and there's nothing pressing you further and forward to Christ, how can you say that you've come to know Him at all? Here's the encouragement. Jesus will not meet you with a scowl when you stand before Him on the final day. He will not meet you with disgust, with displeasure, with anger and frustration. He will not look at you and say, why did you not do more for me? He will say, come, come, good and faithful servant, I love you. Why? Because His love for you is fixed in what He has accomplished for you already. On the cross, here's the message to us. Repent of sin. See that all of our sin is a chasing after anything else that we think is going to satisfy us. And it never will. It cannot of necessity. It is the mercy and grace of God to you, at least to some degree, that you have not been satisfied in your endeavors in this world, in this life. If you find misery at the end of the, the, the bucket that you're swimming in, if you find nothing but heartache, Consider this, God has not let you be satisfied in something less than Himself. And knowing Him and His presence. 
So I say again, repent of all those things which cannot satisfy and come drink from the well of him who can of Christ, who says, I died. I died in the place of all of your sin, all the things you were after that aren't me. That's why I died. And to press on to know him and the fullness of his love in this way. Is that your heart's desire as you look to the future, as you look to heaven? And to eternal life. Are you looking to know the perfect presence of your God and King? To know Christ that way. To enjoy that relationship. This is the church's one foundation. Is Jesus Christ her Lord. And I pray that we would all continue pressing on together. Towards that calling. That high calling in Christ. And that if you are lost. You would look to Him today and live. That you would find your soul satisfaction in Him. So with that, I will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank you for this opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to see and know and love you. And I pray, oh God, that you would continue with us. That we might all press on together as your people. Father, bring the lost. Oh God, as we seek to compel them to come in, we know that they will not apart from your hand. Do that which you alone can do, oh God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.